0: And hello, friends, and welcome once again to another episode of Now Appalachia here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us. I am delighted to welcome author Valerie Neiman to the program today. We are talking about her brand new mystery thriller novel called In the Lonely Backwater. And this is a haunting story that really has two mysteries at its center. It's sort of this uh, engrossing whodunit, a traditional mystery, but also focusing on a very enigmatic uh, young woman who has a significant role in trying to solve what happened in this story, and her name is Maggie Warshower, and I'm delighted to uh, talk about her in just a minute as well, and Maggie is a budding scientist. She's sort of this keen observer of the natural world, and she fits in beautifully and heavily to Valerie Neiman's story called In the Lonely Backwater. We welcome Valerie to the program today. She is an author uh, of not only this book, but also her recent book prior to this one was called To the Bones, She's also the author of three earlier novels, a short fiction collection, and three poetry books. Her award-winning poetry and short prose has been published uh, both nationally and internationally, and she has also held state and NEA creative writing fellowships. And in addition to that, uh, she has been a recipient of the 2013-2014 North Carolina Arts Poetry Fellowship, and she's also received an NEA Creative Writing Fellowship, as well as major grants in West Virginia and Kentucky. Her writing awards and publishing awards also include uh, the Greg Grummer, Nazim Hikmet, and Byron Herbert Reese Poetry Prizes. She graduated from West Virginia University and Queens University of Charlotte. She's a former professor, now retired, and journalist, now retired, and she now teaches creative writing at conferences and venues such as the John C. Campbell Folk School. And it is my pleasure to welcome to the program today to talk to us about her brand new book, Uh, Valerie Neiman. Val, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Elliot. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, so many things I want to talk to you about this book because uh, there's just so much going on here and just such wonderful storytelling and fantastic characters. But I wanted to ask you one question first, because I know this factors in significantly uh, to your writing, and that is kind of what you did in your previous life. You served as a, uh, a reporter in, uh, some West, in West Virginia working for uh, uh, some newspapers, and, and your beat was kind of the cops and courts beat. And uh, you were involved in sort of going down there. That was your beat, interviewing detectives, covering cases, covering what went on uh, with police and law enforcement in the court system. Can you talk about that experience and how so much of that translates not only to uh, In the Lonely, in the lonely uh, Backwater, but also your other works?
1: Sure. I, I went to school at West Virginia University for journalism because I wanted to write. And I come from blue collar people. And that whole idea of how you become a writer was really, who knows how that happened. So I thought, well, I'll become a reporter. And I did. And I'm so glad I did because it gave me first entree to places I wouldn't otherwise have have been able to go and put me into uh, connection with people that, again, I might not have known these people. whether it's a, a person being hauled in down at the police station or uh, uh, riding with the governor in his limo, which happened one time. Thank you, Jay Rockefeller, for your kindness. Uh, it was pouring rainstorm. And uh, so I, I, was, I was able to really uh, broaden my horizons and have a lot of experiences that I wouldn't have had. Being a police reporter, I really loved, out of all my beats, and I had many, because if you work at a small newspaper, kind of do everything and i like the police the best because it's so immediate raw human emotion um firefighters trying to save a woman's little dog and giving it you know oxygen and she's crying you're right there where things are happening amid the the welter of human emotion uh i i learned a great deal and i enjoyed writing those stories i think they're the most compelling Um, whether it's a a murder or it's something that's kind of a a funny little story people always read the uh, police beat stories which I kept safe for when I was covering zoning commission
0: so yeah they want to see if there's anybody in there that they know that has been arrested (laughs) they're not so sure about Um, (laughs) I imagine what was interesting too about that beat Val is that everything there had really happened or was really going on. And I imagine you had to have some moments as a reporter thinking, my goodness, this is better wanting to be a writer. This is better than any fiction I could come up with. You know, this court case, this hearing, this trial, this investigation, what someone has done to someone else for these reasons had to be better than anything you could probably come up with on your own. I mean, I, I found that way writing mysteries and thrillers myself is that, you know, when you look for inspiration out there for, for stories in your, in your work, the stuff that goes on in real life is so much better than anything you could make up and did you find that to be true in a lot of the cases you were covering
1: oh yeah uh you know it just makes me think of tons of, of of incidents uh but i think that as a reporter and a writer yeah i was doing the factual stuff during the day but all of this other stuff was just kind of percolating into my mind i didn't start out writing crime and mystery novels i started out science fiction but it was always there. And the last three books have been all in that in somewhere in that form. And I was able to call up memories of, you know, what it smelled like at the courthouse and uh, uh, how the the detectives worked a scene. It was it was uh, part of my DNA. I mean, I did it for 20 some years. And I think that that, you can do that with research as well, and people certainly do. And I know you know some eminent people who, who rely on research and I, I do research as well. but I kind of like the, the the juice of the reality and then changing it and transmuting it around from, from the actual uh, events, but drawing from them
0: excellent excellent as we look at your book it's just a terrific story and we've got just some wonderful characters in here that we'll touch on in just a second but one of the things i loved about this book in the lonely backwater uh and your other books as well including uh to the bones is that you you do such a wonderful job at setting and establishing setting and making these places come to life and as we look at this particular book we're, we're following a character 17 year old uh, maggie warshower uh who is living on sort of this cramped run down houseboat with her father, Drew, who's an alcoholic. Uh, Maggie, um, uh, Maggie's mother has sort of fled the scene and, and Drew is writing her letters repeatedly. Those letters get returned. She's not receiving them or reading them or anything like that. But this town of Philly All Creek that, that you have created uh, just really comes to life on, on every page. And I found myself transfixed in terms of being there when I was reading, but also kind of wanting to visit there. Can you sort of set the background for us, Philly Yaw Creek, uh, what is this place like? Who's living here? Uh, What are the prospects for people to to find work and happiness? What what is really going on here in Filly Creek? Because you do such a wonderful job of really making this place come to life.
1: Well, this is a a little Southern place. It's uh, actually not even a town, uh, kind of a crossroads this is an area that had high hopes back many many years ago and those all kind of faded away and so you've got little rural towns that don't have a whole lot going for them and this particular place where Maggie lives the Army Corps of Engineers built a lake built a dam built a lake and so they're running the marina on the lake and so they're even more isolated she's not actually in even one of the little towns that are referred to she's just out on this lonely lake where there's nothing but people coming in to you know, take their boats out. And so she's kind of thrown back on herself. She, she enjoys her own company and she's fine being alone. She sails alone, she wanders the woods, she botanizes and identifies uh, plants and animals. And so it, it's not that she is um, lonely so much as she is alone. Often, she has some friends, but she's she's kind of a, a self-directed person and, and fine on her own.
0: And you mentioned botany, and one of the interesting things I loved about the story is uh, you talked about she does have some friends. Uh, she creates this uh, th- this fictional boyfriend, a fictional lover, I guess, Fletcher, um, that, that I found was so interesting to kind of almost like an imaginary friend that you remember little kids creating, you know, the, the, the imaginary friend. But I really love the fact that she makes a connection with uh, an 18th century botanist and uh, Linnaeus. And uh, he had this 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 book or this collection of writing called Tour in Lapland. Um, And Maggie discovers this in an abandoned local church. What is it about uh, Linnaeus's work that is so intriguing to to her? And, And why does Maggie kind of keep thinking about him and kind of assigning his terms and his vocabulary to things that she sees and experiences in her own world?
1: She comes upon the book, actually, she sort of steals it. She's uh, wandering around the area of this church and sees the doors open, goes in. Somebody had been there and was ransacking. She starts to pick up these scattered pages and becomes entranced when she reads. It's written almost like a, a wilderness adventure where he's talking about climbing up this crag and finding these eagle owls. And it's, it's really compelling and interesting. And she also thinks that because the the uh, uh, when she looks up his name, it has... Carol as one of his names and Carola she thinks it was a woman and she's just like wow look she's out here in the woods doing this stuff well it turns out of course it wasn't but she's still really engaged with what he did which was going to an unknown place and observing and writing down and categorizing and that's what becomes so important to her she has a a difficult place her mother has just taken off her father's fallen apart And so she's effectively running the marina, trying to get through her last couple of years at school. She's not a popular kid. She's out on the fringes. She's not gender performing. Her mother tried her best to force her into pink dresses and curly hair and makeup, and it didn't take. Uh, Maggie's having none of that. And so when she discovers this idea of categorizing and taxonomy, for her, it kind of clicks into place. There's a way to make the world make sense. You can identify it, you can describe it, you can assign it to a category. And so then she's categorizing everything, the people at the marina, she, you know, where they belong in terms of her, her own uh, table of contents kind of thing, uh, people at school, even the detective. So it's, it's a safety strategy.
0: And one of the central plot points that you describe so well uh, in this story involves uh, Maggie's cousin Sharisse, and, uh, and I think I'm pronouncing that right. Am I pronouncing her name correctly? Is it sure? That, well,
1: I, I pronounce it Sharice, but I Charisse. think you know it could be. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Whether that's right or wrong, that's the way they say
0: it. Perfect. Very good. So uh, I just want to make sure I got that right. Um, but 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 Sharice, um, she disappears on prom night. Maggie's cousin does uh, she'd been assaulted by her date to the prom earlier uh, and then later she turns up dead on the houseboat at the marina where Maggie and drew her father have been living and working uh, but prior to all of that um, you established that that Charisse and Maggie are almost opposites of each other. Sharice is pretty and popular where Maggie is, is not so much and more reserved and sort of an outcast. Uh, but Sharice and Maggie prior to all this had had an argument and a little bit of a, a breaking up of their relationship, both uh, in person and online. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is it that led to their spat and how that factors into uh, what we see happen later on when Sharice uh, shows up dead? Yeah.
1: Um. Well, this is a small rural school that draws in people from a wide area. But having gone to such a small rural school, I know that you you really can't escape the other members of your class and your group because it's, there aren't that many of them. Cherise is her cousin. So it's constantly this comparison of you know, these two young women. And she just doesn't like Cherise very much. Uh, she's well to do. She's pretty. She's all of these things. And, and Cherise taunts her for all of the things that, that Maggie is not. And it finally comes to um, some physical altercation and some social media altercation where there are accusations flying back and forth. And Maggie says something fairly ugly uh, in print online. So that establishes, you know, when she shows up dead. Uh, kind of got it right there, you know, this happened and this is what you said.
0: Valerie Neiman is our guest here today on this episode of Now Appalachia. We're talking to her about her brand new, outstanding a thriller novel. It's called In the Lonely Backwater. And we'll come back to that uh, in just a second, Val. But uh, I wanted to uh, ask you just a couple questions, uh, uh, sort of related to to the to the writing life and and your experiences writing this book. I, I know that you had said in an interview that I read or or an article that you had written that this book took you a couple years to to get finished or to get through. Um, why was that? Is is this something that you kind of came back to in between other projects or did it just take it this long, take you that long to get the story right? What, what made it such a a long process and was it difficult to stay committed to it as you started thinking about maybe other projects?
1: Well, it actually took 10 years. So yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the problem was I didn't altogether know what the story was. I had scattered notes and ideas that sort of had a character like Maggie And I had another murder mystery kind of idea. And these things were just kind of floating around and not gelling. Uh, Then I started writing it. And I was feeling my way. I didn't have it laid down exactly what was going to happen. It was not outlined like that. I I had some direction, but things kept popping up. Uh, Things like Drexel Van became much more important than he had been originally. So it took about 10 years and a lot of reworking, especially the ending. I had many good readers who just kept pushing me and said, it's not there yet. It's not there yet. So uh, I thought I had finished it in uh, 2012. And then after that, continued to do revisions and rewriting, and it was accepted for publication in 2020. So eight years between when I thought it was finished and when it actually uh, is appearing, and about 10 years before that, of, of, you know, working toward it before it actually started to to coalesce.
0: And I know that you've written, as we mentioned a moment ago, uh, a couple of other outstanding books. To the Bones was your book prior to this one. One book that I, I read of yours recently that I really loved was Blood Clay, uh, which was a crime novel that was set in North Carolina, where, where you lived and taught. Um, that one's a little interesting and a little different from, I think, your other two, because I think the police and their involvement is a little less as opposed to uh, the other two books. Um, But I love that story because it involves sort of a a death that occurs by dog mauling uh, or dog attack. And that kind of divides this rural community. Um, Was that book in some ways easier or more difficult to write without sort of the the detective police procedural aspect to it? Or did you know going all along when you you set up Blood Clay, I was going to leave that out and just focus more on on the people involved. How did you set that up? Because I love that it was, it was similar to what you've done with your other two novels, but also different too.
1: That one was actually easier uh, in some ways. I, I was not working so much with plot as in a mystery. Uh, I was working more with what happens to people when something like this happens. And I was started down that path. I just had been fascinated with these stories of dog mauling, and they just were compelling and drawing me in. And I really didn't know why. Uh, Eventually, I did come to uh, recover a memory from when I was young of um, an incident where dogs were literally, they gathered up the the farmers and the hunters in the region where I lived, and they went on a an expedition to wipe out these wild dogs because they had uh, threatened people and killed animals and stuff. And I remember, you know, I was just a little child with a picture of these dogs uh, that had been shot. It was pretty gruesome. Uh, so that one was more about just the characters rather than, uh, a, a, as you say, police procedure. Um, and then uh, when I did To the Bones, that one I actually did plot out because I was working with a lot of um, braiding genre. And so I thought, oh, okay, you better have a very standard plot line and know where you're going on this one. And so that one was written very quickly because I was following a path instead of poking around in the dark. And, uh, and I wrote that while I was, you know, uh, sending this around and still revising it. So yeah, they all kind of came together in that period.
0: Excellent, very good. And so uh, I know you've got three novels. We just talked about the the three just a moment ago, but you've also written. Uh, uh, some short story collections and uh, uh, some award-winning poetry collections. Do you have a genre now that you've kind of had publication, a lot of award-winning success in all three genres? Is there one that's a favorite for you? Is there one that uh, if I was to say, all right, Val Neiman, you've got to start a new project tomorrow. Would you pick up one genre and start a project as opposed to the other? Or do they all feed off of each other? How does that work? What what is your favorite? What is sort of your your fallback number one uh, that you like writing in as a writer? And I know uh, I'm a, that's a fair question. <laughs> uh,
1: well, I, I am a problematic writer because I, I just write as the material comes, as the story comes. I started out as a poet. I've always been a poet. I am working on putting together my fourth book now. So I guess I've been a poet throughout. I've done a lot of other things when it comes to fiction. And I think right now what I'm working on, I, I actually am working on a, a sequel to To the Bones, Uh, to pull together, you know, I kind of left a breadcrumb in there. and Now I want to finish up the story. And so I'm working on that. And uh, I don't know where I'll go next. Uh, Actually, I'm kind of playing around with a historical. So yeah, something new.
0: Sounds great. Valerie Neiman, we're speaking with her today here on Now Appalachia. She is our guest and we're talking about her writing career and most importantly and most recently her new book. It's called In the Lonely Backwater. And uh, Val, I had to ask you about another character who I love and sort of set up uh, what happens uh, with uh, Charisse and and what happens to her and sort of the circumstances surrounding this. But uh, another character that you introduced and you mentioned him a moment ago uh, is Detective Van. And uh, I I loved him as a character. Um, He reminded me a lot of um, Detective Bobby Gorin from the old Law and Order Criminal Intent uh, television series in that he enters the room. He's just kind of uh, inconspicuous at first. He just kind of dawdles around a little bit. He starts talking to, to people, asking questions, and you kind of, as a reader, you're thinking, what is he up to? You <laughs> know, What is he doing? And if you're a character, I imagine you're sitting here watching this guy thinking, does he have any idea what he is doing? But what I love is, every time he gets underestimated in the book, everything that he does, there's a method to his madness, and he eventually gets to where he's trying to go. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about creating him and if he was based on someone you knew from your time as a police and courts reporter, or is this someone that you'd always wanted to write in terms of a detective? I just loved his character. I just love the way um, he does things and the way he interacts with Maggie and kind of Maggie's response and how she views him and reflects him. How did he come together?
1: Well, um, I love Drexel Van too. And I didn't know he was going to be as important and as um, a deep a character as he became. He, he sort of, uh, started to take over in a certain way uh, that I, I hadn't anticipated. I think there's there's kind of two traditions of detectives. You have the ones who are smarter than everybody else, like Sherlock Holmes and uh, uh, Poirot, that you know everybody knows they're the master detective. And then you have the ones in the tra- tradition of Columbo who everybody underestimates I mean, You know, he's just sort of like, uh, like on the law and order, bumbling around in his dirty raincoat and, you know, looking like he's got not a clue what he's doing. And so Van is, is kind of in that uh, tradition. He is a, a rural sheriff's department detective, and he's very, very low key. He, he doesn't come in and act like, hey, I'm the detective, look at me. He's, he's just very low key and he doesn't intimidate or threaten or do any of that kind of uh, stuff. He gets you to trust him. He, he talks to you, he, he commiserates and gradually things are pulled out. And so for Maggie, he's really, she refers to him a couple of times as dangerous. Because he's very smart, but everybody underestimates him. And it's so easy to be lulled into talking to him and talking and saying things that you don't want to say. And Maggie has quite a number of secrets. So,
0: And, you know, you mentioned earlier how Maggie sort of classifies everything uh, based on uh, her experience uh, with with Linnaeus' version. I just jotted down a statement or two that she says about Detective Van, and she she calls him a fishing boat, a small one, from Sears, not on a slip, but parked on the monthly lot. Plain aluminum John boat with a little outboard. So clearly... She doesn't think that this is uh, uh, the stellar one hundred and fifty thousand dollar boat that's going to be the uh, the jewel of the river, uh, (laughs) so to speak, as it comes in. But you know what I love about what you do with their relationship is is that you know she she's wary of him uh, uh, to some degree, but we come to find out as as they talk more and as their paths interact he's really the most stable and consistent presence that she has in her life. Despite the fact he's, he's here to find out, to find out what happened to Sharice, you know, he's sort of the the anchor of her life I and mean, she's got all this chaos going on around her, both in her, her personal life and family life and school life. But, but he's kind of in a, in an odd way, sort of the, the center of her, uh, of her existence. And I loved how you, how you bridged those two characters together.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I, I enjoyed watching them grow together, which, uh, was one of those wonderful writerly moments when things happen that you, you didn't set out to have happen. And it, and it does, and you just have to be along for the ride.
0: Fantastic. So and, as we finish up in, in our final moments uh, with you uh, today, Valerie, give us a sense of uh, what you're working on next. I know you teased it a few moments ago that, that you've got uh, a sequel to, uh, to uh, another one of your books, uh, To the Bones, which you're right. If you've read To the Bones, uh, if our listeners have uh They know this. If they haven't, they need to read that uh, before and after Uh, they read uh, In the Lonely Backwater. But you give us a little crumb. And so you're working on a sequel there. But do you have any other projects uh, in the works or any other uh, things that are percolating that you're thinking about tackling next?
1: Uh, Well, as I said, I'm trying to pull together a a new collection of poetry. And it's a, a little difficult because I had two books that were just sort of poetry, you know, not around a theme. And then I did one, uh, Leopard Lady, which was actually sort of a novel in verse with characters and, and a narrative arc. And since then, I've been writing a lot of poems, but they don't seem to fit into anything. And I almost don't want to do another just general bunch of poems. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what the thread is and how I'm going to tie them together. So I'm working on that. And, uh, and I am working on the To the Bones sequel, um, because at the end of that book, you think the the bad guy Kavanaugh's been, you know, dealt with, but it isn't quite that simple. And so there is, the Kavanaugh's are not done yet. That's all the way I think of the book. They're not done yet. So uh, we'll bring back Lorana and Derek, and uh, that did that is an Appalachian book set in West Virginia. But I'm also going to take it to Ireland. So having fun with that one.
0: Oh, sounds like a lot of fun. So in our final moments with you, Val, if uh, anybody wants to uh, reach out to you to uh, talk to you about uh, this book, In the Lonely Backwater, or your other works, or other things that, that you're doing with writing, or appearances, or anything like that, where can they find you, first of all, and then how can they get copies of In the Lonely Backwater, when it's available?
1: They can find me on social media. Um, pretty much, I'm under Val Neiman. Um, and my last name is spelled oddly, N-I-E-M-A-N. So Val will on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, also my website where you can find a lot of this information. And the book is currently uh, in pre-orders. It comes out May 10th. So it can be ordered from the publisher. It can be ordered from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, and your favorite local indie bookstore. And I'll be on the road this summer. So I hope I run into you somewhere and I book festival, or a book club, or or a bookshop.
0: The book we've been talking about today on Now Appalachia is called In the Lonely Backwater. Our guest has been Valerie Neiman. She's also the author of two other outstanding novels, one called To the Bones, the other called Blood Clay. You're gonna enjoy those uh, as much uh, as you enjoy uh, In the Lonely Backwater. She's also an award-winning writer of a number of poetry collections as well as short story collections. And this is a terrific story, a terrific whodunit with with two characters that you're going to want to watch. Uh, Detective Van, as we've talked about, and also Maggie, uh, as as the mystery unfolds, as the murder investigation unfolds, and as these two characters kind of pirouette around and near each other, uh, you're going to want to really pay close attention to it. It's a wonderful book, um, uh, Val, and I know you mentioned that it took you 10 years to get it right. It, it's terrific. I, I'm so glad you didn't give up on it because it's a great story. Uh, congratulations on it, um, and good luck to you uh, with publication, with all your touring, and uh, thanks for the conversation today. Thank you so much
1: much Elliot.
0: we want to take a moment as we finish up this episode of now appalachia to give a special shout out to our executive producer of the program as well as all the podcast programs you hear on the authors on the air global radio network her name is pam stack and we could not do it with all of without all the work that she does behind the scenes to make these podcasts possible so thanks pam uh for all of your support and assistance We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Well, that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well. See you someplace soon, I hope listening to now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the air global radio network for questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host Elliot Parker and his books visit his website at www.elliotparker.com stay tuned more outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the air global radio network